Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the history of the parathyroid gland, their discovery, the determination of their function, and of course, the history of surgically removing them. The idea came from Dr. Leo Gordon, a senior consultant and professor of surgery in Los Angeles, who has written a hilarious one-act play entitled Parathyroids Anonymous, which is set in a church basement with a group of surgeons supporting each other in their challenges as parathyroid surgeons, which we'll see is not an easy task. He has very generously offered to send a copy of the play through mail to any interested parties. You've only to send an email to leogordonmd at gmail.com. So let's check those calcium levels and leave no stone unturned. Make no bones about it. You may groan about the difficulties encountered and moan about mistakes made, but no need to get hyper. So sit back and enjoy this episode of Legends of Surgery. Before we begin, I think it's important for us to review some basics about the parathyroid glands, as it will put the rest of the episode in perspective. So what are the parathyroids and what do they do? As you may already know, the parathyroid glands are found behind the thyroid gland in the neck and are quite small. Typically there are four, a superior and inferior gland on each side of the neck, but sometimes there are more or less, and may be found in unexpected locations, such as in the thyroid tissue itself, the thymus, or elsewhere in the mediastinum, which is part of the chest, high in the neck, or, most frightening for the surgeon, in the sheath surrounding the carotid artery and jugular vein. Their job is to produce parathyroid hormone, which is crucial in regulating calcium in the body. When calcium is low, more hormone is produced, which in turn increases calcium by acting on the kidneys and intestines to increase reabsorption, and on the bones to release calcium. At least that's the simplified version. Now, high levels of parathyroid hormone is called hyperparathyroidism. While there are three types, called primary, secondary, and tertiary, for the purposes of this podcast, we'll focus only on the primary type, which is caused by the glands overproducing parathyroid hormone, typically due to an adenoma, which is a benign tumor of one or more glands. So what happens when there's too much parathyroid hormone around? As a medical student, I learned a little saying to help remember the symptoms, which those of you listening that were trained in medicine may recall too. Bones, stones, groans, and moans. Now the longer version is painful bones, renal stones, abdominal groans, and psychic moans. Interestingly, it should be said that not all are always present, but let's break it down anyway. Bones refers to the many disorders that may occur, including osteoporosis, meaning bone loss, osteomalacia, soft bones, pathological fractures, meaning breaks from minimal trauma, and the classic osteitis fibrosa cystica. This is also known as von Recklinghausen's disease of bone and includes fibrous replacement of the bone and the formation of cysts, which are sometimes called brown tumors due to hemosiderin, or old blood, filling the space. We'll come back to that particular manifestation later. Stones is more simple and refers to the formation of kidney stones due to the high calcium levels in the urine. This can also lead to kidney failure. Abdominal groans refers to some of the gastrointestinal symptoms that appear, including constipation, indigestion, nausea, vomiting, and even peptic ulcer disease and acute pancreatitis. Finally, the psychiatric symptoms, moans, include lethargy, fatigue, depression, memory loss, and even psychosis delirium, and coma. Bonus for any medical students listening. Include hyperparathyroidism on your differential diagnosis for delirium and look like a rock star. 
So given all this detailed knowledge we have about hyperparathyroidism, it's a bit shocking that, despite centuries of detailed anatomical studies by some of the masters of European medicine, no one had truly recognized these tiny glands as something of interest. For example, Virchow, considered one of the greatest medical minds of his time and founder of modern pathology, may have identified the parathyroid gland in a single specimen in 1863. Now, he emphasized that this was not an accessory thyroid gland, lymph node, or other recognizable structure, but curiously did not pursue this finding any further. The first recognition of the parathyroids as a structure of interest actually came about in an unusual way. Now, we covered John Hunter a while back in episode 50. In addition to being a practicing surgeon, Hunter was an expert in anatomy. He collected live animals and turned their skeletons and organs into anatomical specimens. In his lifetime, this collection eventually reached nearly 14,000 preparations of human and animal anatomy. In 1799, six years after his death, the British government purchased his collection of papers and specimens and presented it to the Company of Surgeons, which became the Royal College of Surgeons of England. And although it was damaged during the bombing of London in May of 1941, destroying some of the collection, the Hunterian Museum reopened in 1963 and remains open to this day, pending some renovations, I understand. One of its most famous curators was Sir Richard Owen, a biologist and anatomist. And fun trivia fact, it was Owen who coined the term dinosaur. But what we're interested in is his work on an Indian rhinoceros from the London Zoo. Following its death due to an altercation with an elephant, in which it was suspected that a broken rib had punctured its lung, Owen performed an autopsy on the rhino over the course of two winters. He described his findings to the Zoological Society of London in 1850. Here is his description of the parathyroid gland, quote, A small, compact, yellow glandular body was attached to the thyroid at the point where the veins emerge, end quote. Now this was progress, but it would be decades before someone else identified these glands. Enter a 25-year-old Swedish medical student at the University of Uppsala, named Ivar Sandström, who would make the next great advance in the history of parathyroid surgery, although his tale ends in tragedy. In the summer of 1887, while working as a research assistant, Sandström observed a new gland while dissecting the neck of a dog, which he described thusly, quote, Found on the thyroid gland of a dog, a small organ, hardly as big as a hemp seed, which was enclosed in the same connective tissue capsule as the thyroid, but could be distinguished therefrom by a lighter color, end quote. And as they say, great scientific discoveries typically begin not as a shout of eureka, but rather a quiet statement of, that's odd, followed by meticulous investigation. And so it was with Sandstrom. As he followed up this discovery by identifying the gland on the thyroid of a dog, cat, rabbit, ox, and horse, before dissecting 50 human cadavers to confirm his findings. He wrote all of this up in a paper entitled, quote, On a New Gland in Man and Fellow Animals, end quote, in which he not only painstakingly described the color, variation in shape and location of the glands, but also their vascular connections, performed microscopic studies on the tissue, and even suggested the name glandulae parathyroidae. Now, this paper was submitted for publication, but was rejected by German editors due to its length. While it was accepted later in a Swedish journal, the work clearly did not get the recognition it deserved at the time. 
This obviously bothered him as he wrote in a letter to his sister, describing his presentation of it to a meeting of the natural scientists at Stockholm in August of 1880, stating, quote, Everyone at the meeting seemed to be there with the intention of showing what discoveries he had made, and at the same time give the astonished world the opportunity to have a look at the fortunate discoverer. But for the discovery itself, for the revealed truth, the interest was little or none, end quote. A number of sources suggested that Sandstrom had a mental illness, hereditary or not, which had him fall into a deep depression. He was also troubled by the estrangement of his wife and two children and the unavailability of a professorship. Tragically, Sandstrom committed suicide at the age of 37 in 1889. Now that the glands have been identified, at least to some degree, the next stage would be to figure out what they do. The earliest hints came with the emergence of thyroid surgery and, in particular, the unforeseen consequences of that operation. Of course, if you are not aware of the parathyroid glands, you may unintentionally remove them along with the thyroid gland. The removal of all parathyroid tissue leads to a precipitous drop in parathyroid hormone, and it then follows that calcium levels in the bloodstream drop as well. So let's quickly talk about hypocalcemia, or low blood calcium, and the symptoms it produces. First and foremost is tetany, which is involuntary contraction of the muscles, typically of the distal muscles of the hands and feet. This is caused by hyperexcitability of the nervous system due to low calcium. The word tetany, or tetanus, comes from the Greek tetanos, literally a stretching. Not to be mistaken with the diseased tetanus or lockjaw, which you hopefully have been vaccinated against with a tetanus shot. That disease is caused by an infection by the bacterium Clostridium tetani, commonly found in soil, dust, and manure. The classic story of someone stepping on a rusty nail or other puncture wound or cut is often misunderstood. Or at least by me, I remember growing up thinking it was the rust that caused the problem. Obviously, it's the contamination of the nail by soil that causes the problem. The mechanism of action is a toxin produced by the bacteria that binds in the neuromuscular junction. Okay, now let's get back to tetany from hypocalcemia. Medical students may know the two classic exam maneuvers to identify this. The first is called trousseau sign, which involves occluding the brachial artery, which is in the arm and often done with a blood pressure cuff, which causes spasms of the muscles of the forearm. This was first described by mid-19th century French physician Armand Trousseau. Here's his original description, quote, The thumb is energetically forced into adduction. The fingers are held tightly against one another and half flex over the thumb, with flexion ordinarily only occurring in the metacarpophalangeal joint. The hand, with its palm hollowing out by the coming together of the external and internal edges, takes on the form of a cone, or if you prefer, the form of the obstetrician's hand when he introduces it into the vagina, end quote. This description has become Trousseau's sign, also referred to as the obstetrician's hand. Bet you hadn't heard that before. <gasps> now, the other classic test we're looking for is Chovstek's sign. Again, this tests nerve hyperexcitability, this time by tapping on the facial nerve, causing the muscles of that side of the face to contract momentarily. This was named after Frantisek Schwostek, an Austrian-born surgeon who lived in the Czech Republic in the 1800s. So that's a lot about tetany. The first association with total thyroidectomy was made by Anton Wolfer in 1879 in a patient on whom Theodore Billroth had performed his first total thyroidectomy. What's interesting is the theory proposed at the time. 
Wolfer's explanation for the seizures seen in the patient was from a brain hyperemia, essentially an excess of blood in the brain due to the removal of the thyroid gland. This led to the development of the theory of detoxification, which assumed the tremors and convulsions were caused by some unknown toxins not removed from the circulation by the thyroid and parathyroid glands. Clearly, the function of these glands was not yet understood. This is a time when thyroid surgery was just beginning, and the masters were Theodore Coker and Theodore Billroth. Coker's patients tended to develop symptoms postoperatively of hypothyroidism, whereas Billroth's patients did not, but instead tended to develop tetany, which was often fatal. William Halstead, after observing them both, felt that the difference was in the technique. Coker was known for his meticulous, precise operations with careful control of bleeding, which led to complete removal of all thyroid tissue but spared the parathyroids and recurrent laryngeal nerves. Bill Roth, on the other hand, worked quickly with less hemostasis, which both increased the risk of accidental parathyroid gland removal and incomplete removal of all of the thyroid tissue. Later, Halstead would say about the parathyroid glands, quote, It seems hardly credible that the loss of bodies so tiny as the parathyroids should be followed by a result so disastrous, end quote. It wasn't until 1891 when the French physiologist Eugène Glay from the Collège de France in Paris conducted a series of experiments with rabbits and rats that the relationship between tetany and the parathyroids was realized. He demonstrated that tetany only occurred after thyroidectomy if the glands described by Sandstrom were also removed. He then showed that removal of parathyroids alone also had the same effect and cautioned surgeons to be careful not to damage the parathyroid glands during thyroidectomy. Unfortunately, the conclusion was that an animal without parathyroid hormones became poisoned, leading to tetany, and this goes along with our detoxification theory. Now we have to take a minor change in direction now and talk about Frederick von Recklinghausen. He was a famous pathologist at Strasbourg, then a part of Germany, and had been a student of the previously mentioned Rudolf Virchow. You may be familiar with the disease that bears his name, which is also called neurofibromatosis, but what we're interested in is the bone disease called osteitis fibrosis cystica, which I mentioned at the top of the episode. We now know this is caused by hyperparathyroidism, but initially the relationship was not understood. Jacob Erdheim, an Austrian pathologist at the University of Vienna, who noted at autopsy that patients with bone disease often had enlarged parathyroid glands. While he was the first to associate bone disease with abnormalities of the parathyroids, Erdheim made the incorrect conclusion that the glands were enlarged because of the bone changes and not the cause. This idea of compensatory hyperplasia would not be disproved for another 20 years and would require a surgeon to do so. Next, we have pathologist William McCollum, who worked at Johns Hopkins Hospital. He was able to disprove the detoxification theory by a classic experiment in 1909. Using dialysis, he removed calcium from the blood and injected this blood into tetanic animals and observed that these animals remained in tetany when compared with animals given normal blood, which would obviously still contain calcium. This proved that parathyroid tetany resulted from a lack of calcium in the blood and tissues. These findings led Halstead to initiate the use of calcium and parathyroid extract in his patients with tetany. So once the importance of the parathyroid gland had been established, the next logical step was to figure out how to replace it in patients that had lost them. Now this took on two different approaches, to create an extract of parathyroid hormone to treat patients and to try to transplant glands into patients. 
And here's an amazing fact. The parathyroid gland does not require a direct source of blood, meaning there is no need to connect any blood vessels. You can just place it into a pocket in the tissues and it will regrow its own blood supply. And this is still done to this day. A parathyroid gland is identified and maybe a piece sent to the lab to quickly confirm that it is indeed parathyroid tissue by frozen section, which is a quick way to make slides. If it is parathyroid, a little pocket is made in a muscle, often the sternocleidomastoid in the neck, and the tissues, after being minced up to increase surface area, are just plunked down in the pocket. Isn't that amazing? But let's start with the story of the extract. A Canadian biochemist named James Collip was sure that the parathyroid glands contained a calcium-regulating hormone, and he wanted to isolate this substance to treat patients with tetany or chronic hypoparathyroidism. A fun fact, while not nearly as well-known as Banting and Best, Collip also worked at the University of Toronto and played an important role in figuring out how to isolate and purify insulin from the source pancreas. Using controlled experiments, Collip was able to demonstrate that tetany could be treated with his extract and even showed that there was a direct correlation between blood calcium levels and the quantity of extract administered. A little-known fact seems to be that a medical student, again, named Adolf Hansen at the University of Minnesota actually beat him to the punch, isolating parathyroid hormone from cows. To his credit, Collip did acknowledge that Hansen's extract was similar. The first attempt to transplant parathyroid gland tissue was by a student of Bill Roth's named Anton von Eiselberg in 1892. He took thyroid and parathyroid from a cat and autografted it, meaning it put it back in the same cat, in the abdominal wall. The animal did not show any signs of tetany, and microscopic studies showed that the gland had formed new blood vessels. By 1907, the first successful human autograph took place. Halstead himself showed that even one transplanted parathyroid gland could be life-saving. Here's a quote. We made the startling and hardly believable observation that the life of a dog may be maintained by a particle of parathyroid tissue only one quarter of a millimeter in diameter and distinguished by tetany after its removal, end quote. So as this is a history of surgery podcast, it's about time we got on with the actual surgery. Enter a patient named Albert Gahn of Vienna, Austria. A 38-year-old trolley conductor, Mr. Gahn began suffering from musculoskeletal symptoms, in particular leg weakness, starting in 1919. By 1923, x-rays showed the formation of bone cysts. The next year, he sustained a femur fracture and was admitted to the Hockenegg Clinic under the care of surgeon Felix Mandel. Mandel trained at the University of Vienna beginning in 1910 and graduated in 1919 after his studies were interrupted by a tour in the Austro-Hungarian army during World War I. At the time of meeting Mr. Gahn, Mandel was just 33 years old and a relatively new staff member at the clinic. As was the standard at the time, he was diagnosed with osteitis fibrosa cystica and treated with collops extract, a concentrated parathyroid extract which, unsurprisingly, did not help. By 1925, Mr. Gahn was back in the hospital, now with lower extremity paralysis, severe bone pain, cachexia, meaning wasting, and a white precipitate in his urine. Basing his treatment on Erdheim's compensatory hyperplasia theory, Mandel first tried transplanting four fresh human parathyroid glands into Mr. Gahn's abdominal wall. Where did he get them from? A street accident victim. Seriously. So again, this was unsuccessful for so many reasons. 
Now, finally, Mandel realized that this was not a deficiency of parathyroid hormone, but rather an excess. So on July 30th, 1925, Felix Mandel performed the world's first successful parathyroidectomy, under local anesthesia no less. From the operative and pathological descriptions that are available, we can now speculate that this was actually a parathyroid carcinoma, a much more aggressive lesion than was suspected at the time. While Mr. Gon was able to leave the hospital within a week and was able to walk with a cane and crutch, within two months his symptoms returned and he was readmitted to hospital by 1933. Mandel decided to reoperate, but this time was met with failure. Unable to identify an abnormal parathyroid gland, Mr. Gon continued to suffer until his death three years later in 1936 from uremia, a result of his kidney failure due to the formation of stones. He was just 40 years old. However, his case did serve to teach physicians about parathyroid disease, namely that the primary disease was in the gland and not the bones, and that it could be treated by surgery. Following this historic operation, Mandel was awarded the Venia Legendi for surgery in 1927. However, as he was Jewish, and we're now talking about the German-speaking world entering the 1930s, Mandel's career was disrupted by the Nazi regime. In addition to stripping him of this prestigious award, he was forced to leave Austria in 1938, moving to Jerusalem and continuing his surgical career at the Hadassah University Hospital. After World War II, Mandel returned to Vienna, and his Venia Legendi Award was reinstated following the submission of 233 scientific papers. He died in 1957 at the age of 65. Now we turn to one of the more famous cases of parathyroid disease, Captain Charles Martel of New York City. A strong and tall sea captain prior to his illness, Martel presented in January of 1926 at the Bellevue Hospital in New York City. He had joined the United States Merchant Marines in 1918 at the age of 22. At that time, Captain Martel stood over six feet tall. Interesting fact, his first ship, the SS New York, was mined in the Irish Sea, but obviously he survived or we wouldn't be talking about him now. Seven years later, he had lost seven inches in height, his neck was widened, and he had an abnormal barrel-shaped chest. Martel had a history of multiple fractures, disseminated pain, and deformed legs, and had had to quit the Merchant Marines in 1923. By 1924, he was admitted to the Marine Hospital on Staten Island. Some of the attempted treatments included a Bradford frame with traction to increase his height, high calcium and phosphate diets, cod liver oil, thyroid extracts, adrenaline, heliotherapy, which is exposure to sunlight, quartz lamp treatments, which creates ultraviolet light, and irradiated milk. So a couple things to unpack there. A Bradford frame was essentially a rigid bed frame covered by canvas used to immobilize patients with hip or spinal fractures. The irradiated milk was a strange one, but I found a paper from the 1930s discussing the anti-rachitic activation of milk by exposing it to radiation. Anti-rachitic means to prevent or cure rickets, which is caused by a deficiency of vitamin D. So Dr. Eugene Dubois, who had admitted him to Bellevue in 1926, finally gave our poor suffering patient a preliminary diagnosis of hyperparathyroidism making him the first recorded patient in North America to be given that diagnosis. Dubois decided to refer him to the newly established Ward 4 at the Massachusetts General Hospital, which had just opened in November of 1924. Its purpose was to investigate obscure medical conditions in a unique and ingenious way. 
The idea was to bring patients into proximity with medical researchers, and rather than focus on any specific problem, the beds were available for any obscure medical condition. As one article put it, quote, Freedom of inquiry for the researchers and patients alike was the explicit mandate, and its founders had envisioned Ward 4 as a collaborative environment where physicians and patients worked together to understand the finest details of their conditions, end quote. As we will see, Captain Martell took this approach to heart. After months of observation and study, in May of 1927, Captain Martell underwent the first of two neck explorations by the Chief of Surgery at Mass General, Dr. E.P. Richardson, which only found normal parathyroid glands. By 1929, he was re-hospitalized in New York City and underwent a third neck exploration. Keep track, we're nowhere near done his surgeries. This too failed, and due to worsening symptoms, returned to MGH in May of 1932. For 18 months, he was studied in the two metabolic wards by Albright and Castleman. That summer, the surgeon Oliver Pope performed three negative neck explorations, bringing up our total to six. Amazingly, Martell, rather than being discouraged, read extensively in the Harvard Medical Library, and remember this is a sea captain, focusing on the various locations of the parathyroid glands. He was able to find an account of mediastinal location of the parathyroid glands, meaning the space behind the sternum or breastbone, in the December 1931 volume of the Acta Medica Scandinavica Journal, and insisted that his surgeons explore the mediastinum where he anticipated the tumor would be located. Talk about advocating for yourself. The now seventh operation was performed, and a 3 by 3 centimeter encapsulated tumor was found in the mediastinum. The surgeons removed only 90% of the adenoma, hoping the residual lesion would provide some hormone. Unfortunately, Captain Martel developed tetany on post-op day 3. However, he was able to recover, but this respite would be brief. Six weeks after the operation, a renal stone got stuck in his ureter, and he went into laryngospasm, meaning his airway closed up, following a procedure to relieve the blockage, and he died. However, the extensive studies done on Captain Martell again greatly added to the knowledge and understanding of parathyroid disease. Of course, over the decades, our understanding of the parathyroid gland expanded, operations improved, and new technology like rapid parathyroid hormone lab tests were developed to improve intraoperative identification of the glands. But it was these scientists, physicians, and patients that led the way in the early days that allowed us to be where we are today. Okay, time for Suture Tales. This latest idea comes from a listener and is a fascinating tale involving politics, surgery, assassination, cover-ups, and a long unsolved mystery. So let's get into some details. Our tale takes place in the 1930s, Louisiana, and involves the murder of U.S. Senator Huey P. Long on September 8, 1935. So who was Long? Nicknamed the Kingfish, he had been the governor of Louisiana and then represented that same state in the U.S. Senate. He was a Democrat and a popular politician with many supporters and was planning a bid for the presidency in 1936. But like all politicians, especially those who are outspoken in their criticisms, he had developed a number of enemies. We won't go into too much detail, but Long did have some run-ins with the medical establishment in Louisiana. One of the most famous surgeons from New Orleans was Alton Oshner, whom we've touched on a couple of times in previous podcasts, and may be a name familiar to anyone from that part of the world, as the Oshner Health System is one of the largest 
non-university-based academic medical centers in the U.S. It began as the Oshner Clinic, which Alton established, and famously was one of the first medical centers to document the link between cancer and cigarette smoking. But prior to that, Alton Oshner had been recruited from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1927 to succeed another famous New Orleans surgeon, Rudolf Mattis, as chair of the Tulane Department of Surgery. Tulane did not have its own hospital at the time, but Oshner was able to create one of America's best surgical training programs at the New Orleans Charity Hospital. It was in his role as chair of surgery where his run-in with Long occurred, which would have some very important ramifications. As we will get to, the physician in charge of Long's emergency surgery was one Arthur Vedrine. He was a Tulane graduate and worked as a general practitioner in a small town in Louisiana where he championed Long politically. This led to his appointment by Long to become the superintendent of the charity hospital in 1929. Vedrine requested an appointment as professor of surgery from Oshner, who felt it would be inappropriate because of Vedrine's being a political appointment, never mind the fact that he had little surgical training. Vedrine would have his revenge in an event that occurred in the spring of 1930. Frustrated by his inability to train surgeons and build the Department of Surgery as he wished, due to the university's dependence on the charity hospital, which was politically controlled and uncooperative with the medical school, Oshner penned a letter to Alan Whipple at Columbia University in New York. That's the same Whipple from the eponymous procedure, which we covered in episode 55, expressing his concerns and his consideration of leaving New Orleans. Somehow, a copy of this letter was removed from his coat pocket, and in September of 1930, it surfaced at a board meeting of the charity hospital, which Long used to show Oshner's lack of absolute loyalty. Long canceled Oshner's position as chief visiting surgeon and barred him from the charity hospital, and it has been suggested that Vedrine directly or indirectly was involved in the letter getting into the hands of Long. And the vengefulness of the politician Long didn't stop there. He announced a new medical school at LSU, or Louisiana State University, and named Vedrine as dean when it opened in the fall of 1931. So there you have it. Imagine a medical school being created out of spite. Sorry to any LSU Tigers out there listening. Fortunately, the new chairman of the Department of Surgery, Urban Mayus, had the rectifying of the situation with Oshner as one of the conditions of his acceptance of the position. All right, so that's the background of the political situation. Let's get to the main event. By 1935, Long was one of the most powerful and influential politicians in the U.S. and had made many enemies to the point where some of them talked about armed opposition, even establishing an anti-long paramilitary organization called the Square Deal Association. Tensions were high. On Sunday, September 8, 1935, Long was at the state capitol attempting to oust a longtime opponent, Judge Benjamin Henry Pavey. At 9.20 p.m., just after a bill was passed removing Pavey, Pavey's son-in-law, Carl Weiss, a physician from Baton Rouge, shot Long in the right upper abdomen with a handgun from four feet away. Long's bodyguards returned fire, killing Weiss, and the autopsy showed he'd been shot more than 60 times. Following being shot, Long somehow managed to walk 40 feet down the hall and then down four flights of steps before being driven by private car to Our Lady of the Lake Sanitarium, about a quarter of a mile away. So let's get into the controversy around his medical care. Long was awake, but pale and sweaty upon arrival. 
Vedrine, Long's political ally, happened to be in the area and took charge as the admitting physician. Remember, he had little surgical training. Initially, Vedrine examined the wound, cleaned it, typed in crossmatch for a blood transfusion, and moved him to a private room reserved for Catholic bishops. He was showing clear signs of shock from blood loss, and so the decision to operate was made by committee, including Long's aides and assistants, medical consultants, and interested parties. Vedrine called for assistance from experienced surgeons in the area, which is at least one good decision, including Urban Maas, whom I mentioned earlier. But he was delayed because his car, which was driven by his resident, talk about abusing the house staff, got into a fender bender just outside New Orleans. Given Long's deteriorating condition, they decided to proceed with the surgery, making Vedrine the chief surgeon by default. Again, the politics of this amazes me, but apparently getting anesthesia arranged was a challenge. The anti-Long Henry McCowan was reached. He had made an offhand comment a few days earlier saying, quote, If I ever give Huey an anesthetic, I will put him to sleep for good, end quote. Imagine somebody saying that now. He did agree to be involved on the condition that another physician there, a pediatrician named Cecil Lorio, would act as a witness so that he could not be accused of giving suboptimal care. The operation proceeded, mind you, without x-rays, remember he'd been shot, or urinary catheterization, which will be important later, nor digital rectal exam. The operating room itself was described as chaotic and frenzied, with both medical and non-medical people in the room. Some of them wore surgical gowns, some wore street clothes. Here are some quotes describing the scene. One of the most bizarre and unreal operating room settings that one could possibly imagine. Spectators, bodyguards, and medical professionals elbowed each other for space in the operating room. And one of the most public operations in medical history. And a vaudeville show. The surgery began at 11.22 p.m. with a paramedian, meaning near the midline, incision being made, incorporating the anterior bullet wound. There was not much blood in the abdominal or peritoneal cavity, but a small hematoma or collection of blood was seen on the small bowel and a small in-and-out colon perforation at the hepatic flexure, which is where the colon makes a turn at the liver, was found with, quote, minimal spillage, end quote. This was repaired and the abdomen closed, with the operation finishing at 12.25 a.m. Vadrine said after the operation, quote, it was nothing, it was just a perforation of the intestines, end quote. Now, some of you may be thinking, where was all the blood, then, if he was in hemorrhagic shock? And was the bullet found? Excellent questions. Let's continue our story. In the hours following the surgery, Long did not do well. His vital signs continued to deteriorate, and he never regained complete consciousness. Again, many non-medical personnel were moving in and out of his room, and again the scene was described as chaotic, which is less than ideal for someone recovering from surgery. At one point, Vedrine told another surgeon that the right kidney was injured and bleeding. When questioned, Vedrine stated that he hadn't seen the kidney injury, but only felt it. Eventually, a catheter was put into Long, and it showed he had significant hematuria, or blood in the urine. Unfortunately, the group of surgeons present decided that Long was too unstable to be taken back to the operating room. Part of the treatment here is worth mentioning. I'll remind you, listener, that we're talking about a major teaching center in the U.S. in 1935. At 2 p.m. on the day following the surgery, Long received a rectal installation of the following. Laudanum, 
or opium, aspirin, brandy, and saline. An interesting cocktail, so to speak. And despite this, Long continued to worsen and received a third blood transfusion from the same donor, a resident at the charity hospital named Willard Ellender, whose brother was a Long crony and sat in the Louisiana House of Representatives. So again, here is a medical trainee going above and beyond the call of duty. Eventually, the chief of urology at LSU, Jorda Call, was brought in. He was able to aspirate frank blood from the right perirenal area, confirming the suspicion of a kidney injury and indicating a massive retroperitoneal, which is the space behind the abdominal cavity, bleed. I guess that's where the missing blood went. Long died at 4.10 a.m. on Tuesday, September 10th, just under 31 hours following the shooting. Shockingly, an autopsy was not performed. But, and this is one of the weirder twists to this story, one of the doctors involved named Clarence Lorio allegedly removed a bullet from Long's abdomen at the funeral parlor the next day. Some witnesses say a bullet was removed at surgery, some say not, and Vadrine, the most responsible physician, later claimed that there were two bullets in him, which led to all sorts of theories about whether there was a second shooter or if one of his bodyguards accidentally shot Long. But while this happened 85 years ago, many details remain a mystery. A number of medical authorities have been critical of the care provided at the time, and the influence of politics has been blamed. The bottom line is that the care of the patient may have been affected by his political actions. Long's son, U.S. Senator Russell B. Long, later stated that he thought his father would have survived had the great surgeon Alton Oshner been involved. Whether Oshner wasn't consulted for political reasons, or simply due to an oversight given the chaos of the situation, is just one of the many mysteries that lives on in the assassination of Huey P. Long. Certainly an interesting tale. Thanks again to the person that sent it in. Now that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Not sure what the next episode will be. I've got a couple things on the burner, so we'll have to wait and find out. But in the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there. Or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery. Or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>